0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter uh, 61. If you're not familiar with the Bible or you don't own a Bible, there's a red one around you. Feel free to use that this morning. Um, If you uh, aren't familiar with the Bible, basically go to the middle and then kind of turn to the right. Isaiah takes up a big chunk of the Old Testament. And so I'm going to be reading Isaiah 61. And I'm going to shorten the reading a little bit here to uh, just through verse five. So hear these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil. Instead of mourning and splendid clothes instead of despair, they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers, This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment just to, of silence and just ask God to speak to us. Take a deep breath in and breathe in the mercy and the grace and the love of our Father for us this morning. And let's breathe out our cares and concerns and our anxieties. Let's just ask God to speak to us as his children this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you're with us this morning. We pray that you would speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Help us not only to understand, but to be changed, to be renewed and transformed, and then to go out into the world and be agents of renewal. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if, you're, uh, if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been spending time, as we do every fall, kind of working through our vision statement which is practicing the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. And we're focusing this year on what it means to be a community for the life of the world. And so two weeks ago, we started looking at this idea that Jesus himself is life. He is flourishing. He came to give abundant life to the world. And we kind of traced that story from Genesis to Revelation, and we looked at what Jesus is doing and bring flourishing to the world. Last week, we looked and kind of zoomed in more as individuals. What does it look like when we encounter the renewing presence of Jesus in a way that transforms us spiritually and personally. And so I want to encourage, if you didn't have a chance to listen to those, go back, uh, because all these things that we're going to talk about today kind of build off of one another. But today I want to talk specifically about cultural renewal. I want to talk about social and cultural renewal. What does it look like when we uh, bring that renewing presence out to the world? Thank you, Lily Claire. Um, And uh, and I want to talk about cultural renewal. Now, culture one sociologist has said, rightly, I think, is one of the most complicated, um, probably misunderstood words in the English language. If I were to ask you, actually, last service, one of our teachers uh, who teaches in the public tool system, she teaches ninth grade history. As a part of ninth grade history, she teaches on culture and the history of culture. And she's like, yeah, I thought I knew what culture was. Then you started talking about it. I realized I don't even know what culture is. Okay, so if like a professional history teacher doesn't understand culture, I think it's, it's complicated. But when we hear culture... Uh, I was listening to David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist, some of you may uh, read his stuff, and he said on a podcast, he says, anytime I hear a pastor use the word culture, I immediately have like a trigger reaction, because usually it's used in like a negative culture war sense, and I want to kind of grab like this angry pastor, like, you know, pastors would be like, the culture, the culture is evil, the culture is bad, well, the culture doing this. He said, I just have this reaction, because it tends to be something really negative, and it's kind of a precursor to. Like a, just a rant about like how evil and secular the world is, and I want to not do that today. Okay, I want. I, I know for some of us, culture has political connotations. For some of us, it, it's it's kind of a class thing, right? Like we talk about highbrow culture versus lowbrow uh, culture. Um, this idea of cultural renewal, though, is something I, I was looking back at my notes and uh, like all, the index of all my sermons. I have probably talked about this idea. Just about more than anything else at some. if you've been around for a while, you're already going to start rolling your eyes, Uh, oh, we're talking about the renewal of the city again. Yeah, that's one of the core ideas that really animates us as a community, and yet it's something that we have to constantly come back to. I know that many of you are new, and you've not heard this. So welcome for those who are new, and I'm sorry for those who've been around, because I'm just going to keep reminding you how important this is for the rest of our lives together, because it is absolutely essential to God's vision of the world. Okay, so Isaiah 61 Uh, just a little context. Isaiah was a prophet in the late 8th century. Um, Israel was about to be uh, judged. He's essentially prophesying two things, judgment and hope for the people of God. In the first 39 chapters, Isaiah's prophesying. He's looking into the future 150 years down the road, and he's saying God is going to bring Israel, not just the world, but actually Israel first and foremost into judgment because of her idolatry and her injustice. Right? There's corruption from top to bottom in Israel. Israel who's supposed to be a light to the nations is actually becoming complicit in and a perpetuator of darkness at every level, religious, political, social, spiritual. And God is going to send Assyria and Babylon, the two big military powers of the day to lay waste to Jerusalem and to carry off a lot of their cultural elites into exile, right? So Bad news, good news, comes in chapter 40 and the rest of the book of Isaiah, which is where we find this section. God has promised hope, right? Like not all is lost. God has promised to send a future Messiah king who's gonna bring the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God into the world, the salvation of God, the renewal of God to people, right? So he's going to transform individuals. He's gonna transform relationships, like social relationships. He's gonna transform Structures and systems and, and institutions, and, and really, ultimately, he's going to transform cultures. That's the promise. That's the hope of Isaiah, verse chapter forty to sixty-six. And right, kind of towards the end of this, we have this passage here, right? And what Isaiah, looking into the future under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees is a culture in ruins. Right, literally, that's what he says. He sees a, a people, a city, and an entire culture that is ruined, right? Like, notice throughout this passage here, all the evidences. If you were to read all 11 verses, you would see this is really comprehensive, the ruin that they are experiencing, right? Like, a people that are in ruin, people who are walking in shame and guilt and fear. He says, I've come to to bind up the brokenhearted, those who've experienced trauma and oppression, as well as those who are doing the things that are inflicting trauma and oppression On other people. I've come to heal the brokenhearted, he says. I've come to set the captive free. There are people that are in bondage, that are literally in prison unjustly. He says, There are people that are mourning, weeping. They're despairing. They've lost heart. Not only are people in ruins, but also the social and cultural fabric has been completely torn. We see here multi, multi generational poverty, right? We see oppression and violence. We see broken families. We see the absence of creative beauty and energy, right? Like everything's torn down, everything's ugly. There's no beauty. There's no energy towards building. It's all just being deconstructed. And, and he summarized this in verse 4, talking about them in terms of ruins. The ancient ruins, the former devastation, the ruined cities, the devastations. Of many generations, this word "ruin" is the uh, Hebrew word for dried up. So, like literally, like imagine a garden that was at one time. The implication is there was a time when this place was flourishing, right? When culture was flourishing, and now um, this this thing has dried up, right? So we need to understand here that there's a promise. Of renewal, right? The promise of renewal and the promise of restoration is, is not that this is something totally brand new that's gonna come into the world. It's it's actually the rehabilitation of the way that God designed the world to be in the future, right? Like if something is languishing, there was a time when it was flourishing. Right? We need to keep that in mind. When people talk about cities, like all of us, most of us live in the city, we, we tend to focus on how irredeemable they are, how bad they are, how broken they are. But the tragedy of living in the city is the potential for its flourishing, right? Like, you know there was a time when when it was different. You know that it was created. Like, we were not designed to live in this city with this kind of brokenness, right? Like, there is a flourishing. There is a life. There is a shalom. There is, I mean, God talks here in verse 8 about justice, right? Like, I love justice, God says. That word justice is just really kind of a word for shalom, right? Like, I, I want image bearers to be experiencing life and flourishing wholeness and healing. They, they were designed for that. They were created for that. And that is what the Spirit of God is doing in the world. As Isaiah looks to the future and he looks to the new heavens and the new earth, which is what chapter 61 is. Chapter 60, really, and 61 together provide us a vision of the future city, the future heavens, and the earth. This will be picked up and quoted by revelation later when he's talking about the end of time, when God brings the heavenly city down to earth and he rehabilitates the world. This is what the Messiah has come to do to bring culture renewal. Like you see culture all over these chapters, right? Like he's not just saving souls, although he is certainly doing that. He is rehabilitating and bringing life into the world that impacts us personally and, and helps us recover a sense of the worship of God being formed into the image of God, that's all here, right? But he's also talking about culture. Don't miss all the culture in these passages. There's gonna be culture in the new heavens and the new earth. When the kingdom of God comes to this earth, we will still be involved in culture. Notice what we see here. We see art and architecture. We see wealth and economic systems. All the nations bring their wealth into the kingdom of God. We see a renewed um, nation kind of family culture, right? Like family, a nation just being like an ethno-linguistic culture formed over multiple generations. That's what a nation is. We see work. We see justice, a criminal justice system renewed. We see commercial activity. We see cities. Cities are just cultures reaching a certain kind of critical mass, what the Messiah has come is coming to do, has come to do, and is coming to do, is to take those ancient ruins, to take those devastations that have been marred by sin and injustice, designed by God to be good, but marred by sin and injustice, and perverted and twisted into idolatry and injustice. He's going to come, and he's going to transform people. And then, he, as he heals those people, he's going to send them out into the world to rebuild and renew cities. As we are transformed, we are sent into the world to be agents of transformation. That is the calling. That is what Jesus is about. That is what God is about in the world. And so when we think about renewal, I just want to, like, reattach culture to renewal. Culture is not some thing over here, and, like, God's doing this thing over here. I want to bring them back together, right? Again, culture is something that we often think of negatively, but the story, and again, I, I, we don't have time to, I did this in the first service and got in trouble went way over time. So we don't have time to get into the whole story of culture. If you want to read about it, I just want to encourage you, and, and, and I know some of you get tired of me doing this, as long as I am one of the teaching pastors here, I'm going to drag you back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 about every other week, if not every week, because it's so important that we understand, like the story of culture does not begin in Genesis 3. It doesn't begin with brokenness and sin and evil. It begins in Genesis one, right? God creates the world. He is the original cultivator. He is the original artist. God is the original architect. God is the original creative and author of life. And he takes men and women, creates them in his image, and then he sets them down in the world and says, create culture. right, that's all Genesis 1 is. He created male and female. He blesses them, and he says, go build culture. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion over it, take the reign and the rule of God, and extend it out all of creation. That is called oftentimes the cultural mandate, okay? So if you just want to write that down, you can Google it later. I can give you definitions in my slideshow, but just it's the cultural mandate, right? Go out and build civilization, right? That is the essence of what God is telling Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter one. That is the first human job description. Every human being who lives will make culture. It is inescapable. You can't not make culture Culture involves the narratives that give meaning to our lives. It involves practices and convictions and ideas. It also involves institutions. There's no culture without institutions, right? Ideas don't just change history by themselves. They change history as they touch and are embedded within institutions, for good and for bad. Culture is also things that we make. It's artifacts, right? Like Some of you got up this morning, yesterday morning I got up, uh, first thing in the morning, Saturday morning, my family, it's going down to a cultural institution, Food Emporium, down at the end of my neighborhood, at the end of my block, going to buy donuts that somebody put time and creativity and energy, thank you, Lord, for donuts, right? They put their time and skill, I don't know if they were Christians or not, like I know some of us are like, it's not good unless it's Christian donuts or it's run by, okay, I just know they're good donuts, I don't care if a Christian made them, I want them to taste good. Oftentimes it tastes better when they're not made by Christians for some weird reason. (laughs) Christian sometimes means like, you know, it costs half as much and tastes half as good, you know. Yeah, except for chicken, right? We do we do chicken good, right? (laughs) We do chicken good. Some of you, though, like yesterday morning, I went down, I bought those donuts, and I brought them home, and because I'm, on, uh, uh, I'm doing Noom and I'm on this diet, I can only eat half of a donut, which is about 200 calories, and then I make my own eggs, right? So like eggs are like kind of the product of like the natural world, but when you turn it into an omelet, now you're doing culture, right? It's butter, it's cheese, there's art, right? Like that's, that's culture making. We do it all the time. It, it's how we make sense of the world and how we make meaning in the world. This is the essence of the cultural mandate. It's it's taking raw materials and reorganizing them for flourishing. That's the essence of journalism, right? Taking stories and experiences. That's the essence of art. Taking the raw materials of construction and physical creation and ideas about how things are made beautiful, right? Like you can look at any work you do, right, as human beings. That is the essence of creating culture, right? And that can happen on a large scale, like in industries, and and in nation states, but mostly, honestly, it happens on very small scales, right? Like, it happens um, in the stuff that we do in our daily lives. Like, the moment you wake up, and you put on clothes, and you start to speak the English language, or Spanish, or Italian, or whatever it is you speak, you're you're engaging in culture, right? It, It happens on the level of our neighborhoods. As we walk our neighborhoods, like, I don't know how many guys got to do that in COVID. It was awesome, just walking your neighborhoods and noticing all of the beautiful diversity and culture that's happening, as well as the brokenness. Like that's at work every day, in our families, in our workplaces. Culture matters to God because it's the heart of human flourishing. To be human is to be a culture maker. To not engage in culture means we have nothing to do and no one to become, and that's when we get really dangerous, and we start creating a negative anti-culture. And that's exactly what happened Again, in the story that we don't have time to get into, sin enters the world in Genesis 3 and it ruins. Both the culture makers, they're alienated from God, right? Progress apart from God, the essence of sin is progress without the presence of God, right? Sin is attempting to make progress, attempting to build culture apart from the presence of God, and we know that's a disaster, right? That goes really badly. And then right there after Genesis 3, you can go all the way and make a beeline to Babel in Genesis chapter 11. They start to build culture and towers, both religiously and kind of from a secular standpoint. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. And it goes really bad. And the rest of human history is kind of the working out of all of that injustice and idolatry. And so, Jesus comes to make things new again. Right? Like he comes again, not just to save souls, although he does that It's so much more. He comes to renew culture, to to pick back up that original mandate that we were given at the beginning of creation, and to make that possible through the power of his Holy Spirit. Al Walters, great little book. If you want to read this, I I promise you, change your life. If you're, um, whatever you do, business, architecture, it's a great little, less like 100 pages. It's called uh, Creation Regain. Here's what he says. What was formed in creation... Has been historically deformed by sin and must be reformed in Christ. So if sin has corrupted culture and institutions and narratives, then Christ has come to redeem all of that, right? He's come to redeem as far as the curse is found, he's come to make all things new again. And that's why Jesus, for his first sermon, picks what passage? Isaiah 61. Luke chapter 4, if you want to read about it. He quotes verse 17 through 20. Isaiah 61, his very first sermon. The Spirit of God is on me. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Isaiah 61 and Jubilee. Jubilee was something that happened every seven sevens, every seven Sabbaths, where the entire economy was supposed to be reset. Generational debts were forgiven, right? Generational poverty was abolished. Now, we don't it actually ever happened, right? That's that's why some people actually think that Israel went into exile because they didn't practice this, and injustice became a part of the fabric of their society and culture. But when Jesus shows up in Luke 4, my point is, Jesus is saying, Jubilee is here. Jubilee is here. Jesus brings the culture of heaven to earth. Where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel fails in her vocation, to bring the culture of heaven onto the earth. That's what all the laws were about, right? Like all those crazy laws in the books of Numbers and Leviticus, basically like here's how to arrange a society for human flourishing down to the fabric of your clothing because all of that stuff matters to God. Where they fail, Jesus comes and he redeems, he renews, he restores. He doesn't destroy culture. He renews culture with the presence of God in every sphere of life. Like Jesus teaches and he renews truth, he enters in and even redeems mealtimes, right? And he says, these are no longer going to be about excluding, but about including people into the kingdom of God. He redeems time. He redeems rituals like prayer and worship and tithing and Passover. And he redeems the institutions of his society, namely marriage, the one he talks about a lot that had gotten kind of sideways, and the temple, and he says, This temple has gotten so corrupt. I am the temple. I am the presence of God. And I'm going to tear down this temple and I'm going to rebuild a new temple in, with my life, death, and resurrection. And I'm going to place the Spirit of God in you. And then you, as my disciples, this is the rest of the New Testament, are going to become the temple of God. That's what Jesus came to do. In his life and his death and his resurrection, he breaks the power of sin and he brings. Forgiveness of sins, he brings life, he brings justice, he brings mercy, he brings the kingdom of God from the future, and he says, I'm going to pull it right here into the present, and you now are going to take the kingdom of God, and you are going to spread this into every domain of human existence. That's what it means to be a disciple. By the way, that's, why, that's how we should read Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not just go evangelize, like save people's souls. It is go renew the entire world. Go and make disciples, Jesus says, baptizing them, yes, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but what else? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you in every sphere of life, You are to form disciples, apprentices of Jesus, to think about what it looks like to live out the shalom of God in all the different spheres and relationships in which we've been placed. That is what it means. And he says, as you go, I'm with you. I will help you. I will empower you. I will be with you. You have all the authority of Jesus. You have the the presidential seal. You have the authority of God himself as you go out into the world. That's a different way to think about discipleship. But what is, what is that? What is Matthew 28 doing? It's just picking up the cultural mandate again, right? It's Genesis 1 saying, let me reorient you again to being culture makers. I'm going to give you my spirit, and I'm going to show you how to do it, and I'm going to make it possible for you to do it because of my death, my resurrection. Now, I just want to pause there because I know that's a lot to take in, right? That's a lot to think about, and we're going to think about that together this year. We're going to think about the book of Acts together. We're going to study the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is the story of how that worked itself out, about how renewal came to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to Rome, and, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Like Acts tells us the rest of that story, how they interpreted Jesus' words and how they went out and how they engaged the poor, how they became a multi-ethnic community, right? In the midst of a world that was so divided, literally in the cities of Rome, they had ethnic quarters that were separated, right? And Jesus tears down those walls. So that's going to be the next year. We don't have time to do that today. But here's what I want to just finish our time looking at is What does it actually look like for us to participate in that together? What does it actually look like for us to do that together? That is our fundamental calling as disciples is to join Jesus. Again, follow the logic of Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. Who brings renewal to the world? God. Now that sounds trite, but like it's important that we remember that. The spirit of God is on the Messiah to bring good news to the poor, to set the captive. Like we don't do this. We join God. God as he's doing his renewing work in the world. so important. But the question is, how do we participate? I find that as Christians, we often lack imagination for how to do this. We don't know where to start. We get polarized, po- polarized and paralyzed. Probably both of those things. I didn't say paralyzed. Polarized and paralyzed in this work. Like some of you are like, I'm not even sure Christians should be engaging with culture. Because we've seen it go so poorly, right? Like eye rolls. Like we've seen it go so badly. We're just like, is it even... Mean, like, there's a raging debate right now within the Christian community and outside. Like, do you realize, like, most secular people want Christians out of cultural spaces, right? Like, like religion is the problem for so, many, uh, for so many secular people. Christians should not be in this space because, according to kind of popular opinion, um, wherever we enter the space, we do really bad things. And that's not completely untrue. Christians have acted poorly. We have been perpetuators of injustice. We have, and we need to own that. But that's not the whole story, right? There's also been a ton of good done by the church over the centuries, and if we only listen to half of the story, we will abdicate our responsibility, our privilege, our image-bearing privilege of entering into culture to bring the renewing presence of God. Like, the question I, like, I want to put to you is like, if not you, if not Christians who have a vision for the flourishing of the world, who've been given the spirit of God, who know the beginning and the ending of the story, if we don't get into those spaces, who will? Right? Like, if we don't have a vision for economics, like Marx does, right? If we don't have a vision for race, and for flourishing ethnically like the world does. If we don't have a vision for work, certainly your boss does, your board, the private equity firm that owns your company, the group of people that own your hospital do. It's it's a contested space. It's not a neutral space. It's a contested space, but it's one over which God has providence and sovereignty, and he invites us into it. But let me just say what it's not. When I say cultural renewal, don't hear me saying Christians should be about changing the world. We've done a lot of that. We've tried a lot of that, and it's not gone so hot. I just, if you want a book length uh, kind of treatment of it, a bunch of essays that probably you'll never read. It's like 400 pages. Just read this book, To Change the World. It's written by a uh, sociologist, James Davison Hunter. And it's basically kind of like a look at how Christians have attempted to change the world. Right, he says there's three false starts, three ways that Christians have tried to change culture. One is through merely or only evangelism. Right, the way to change the culture is by changing hearts and minds. Now, I am pro evangelism, and so is James Davison Hunter. Pro sharing the good news of Jesus. Right, just go on record, so don't leave here going, Brandon doesn't like evangel." No, I'm pro sharing the gospel with people, but changing hearts and minds does not necessarily lead to changing culture. Otherwise. American, America looks so different, right? Like, we know that great revivals have swept through where large numbers of people have come to know Jesus and had their hearts and minds changed, and yet we still have racism. We still have classism. We still have institutional rot, despite the fact that a large portion of our society claims to be Christian. So it's not just changing hearts and minds, although that's important. Another false start is polit- political activism, right? We just think if we can get into the halls of power and we can elect the right person and get the right governors and, and legislators and judiciary, then we'll change the world. How's that working out for us? Not so great, right? And again, get I'm for politics. I'm for engaging. I'm for, like Dr. King said it so well, um, laws don't change, uh, don't change hearts, but they do keep people from getting lynched. So like policy matters, law matters, but it's not the thing that changes in social reform. And he says, all these are false starts. They don't work. He says, cultural change at its most profound level occurs through dense networks of elites operating in common purpose within institutions at the high, high prestige centers of cultural production. In light of this, the cultural economy of contemporary Christianity has strongest in the main where cultural leverage is weakest on the social periphery rather than the cultural center. He says, we can't change culture as Christians because most of our impact is being felt around the margins. We're not involved in the centers of cultural production. So we don't have leverage. We are mostly working way downstream as Christians. And so trying to get in and leverage power ends up in like a zero-sum power contest, right? We end up being fueled by resentment and a sense of marginalization, entering into these spaces with aggression and dominance and trying to power up and dominate, rather than humbly entering into and creating and serving. And so in our efforts to change the world, he says we end up actually being changed by the world more than we end up changing the world. Some of the ways that Christians have historically in America tried to change culture, Andy Crouch in his book Culture Making says there's four kind of dominant postures that Christians have taken. You could probably see these through the lens of different generations, but all four are probably at work still today. Uh, one approach is condemning culture, right? Condemning culture is where we either withdraw from culture or at least we withdraw from selective, like, secular institutions. We're very suspicious towards anything that's not explicitly Christian. So, like, these are like the uh, the post-conversion Kanye Christians, right? Like, I didn't like Kanye and his music beforehand, but when he became a Christian, I'm all in. Now he's singing about Jesus, right? Biebs, same thing. Like, Bieber, now that he's a Christian, I can kind of listen to his stuff, but before, I can't. Right? Like, I only eat Chick-fil-A because that's Christian chicken. I mean, those kinds of things, right? That's some of us. Uh, For others, they've tried to critique culture, right? This is kind of like highbrow philosophy, Francis Schaeffer, Nancy Piercy, Chuck Colson, right? Let's just analyze worldviews and it's a contest of ideas and let's critique worldviews and let's try to change the world by changing people's minds, Right? Uh, another, another posture he mentions is copying culture, right? This is like the Jesus movement. Your parents, some of you guys, know your parents went through, they come to Jesus and they're like, I love rock music, but I don't wanna give up rock music. So let's, uh, let's do Petra, right? Like let's take Christian. If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, good for you. Let, let's take Christian film and let's just create like a parallel universe, you know, and like parodies and, and let's copy culture, change the content and adapt the forms, Right? And the last one is uh, consuming culture, which is probably most prominent in our younger generation in this church right now. Like in a reaction to what we've seen in the top three, we say, no, all culture's good. And we kind of baptize and co-op culture. And we just jump in like, you know, headfirst, and we consume culture uncritically, not recognizing that as we are consuming culture, we're also being changed by culture. Because that's what culture does. It's a contested space. Let me just say this, and we'll begin to wrap up. There's so much I want to say here. Yeah, I've talked about this a lot in the past, but let me just say this. We can't ultimately change the world, and we shouldn't try to change the world. I am not for, like, world-changing language. I think it's dangerous for Christians to have that kind of hubris. It usually ends badly on a meta scale. But we can join God in participating in his renewal of our lives and our culture and our society on smaller scales through everyday, ordinary, what James Davison Hunter goes on to call faithful presence within. Faithful presence within culture. This has, I believe, historically been when Christianity's been at its best. A great another example, if you want to read a book about this recently, I just read this, it's called Bullies and Saints by John Dixon. He's an Australian historian, and he kind of catalogs. Like, when Christians are at their best, they are what Arnold Toynbee, a historian, when he looked at the rise and fall of civilizations, what is the, what's the difference in those civilizations that find renewal versus those that don't? He says there's always, in healthy, renewing cultures, there's always a creative minority. A creative minority, Right? They're not in the center of power, but they're just seeking to be faithful within their cultural context as a creative minority. We don't, I mean, there are appropriate times, right? All of those postures I just mentioned, like, there are times we should be condemning things. We should be condemning violence. We should be condemning pornography. We should be condemning certain aspects of the culture, right? Like, there are things that we need to condemn, but that shouldn't be our primary posture. We need to, at times, critique culture and interact with ideas, right? We need sometimes we do need to copy culture. Like I'm thankful for this architecture in this room that we copied from somebody that wasn't a Christian that just came up with this this idea here. Maybe some of you don't like it, but it's we copy copying. And there are appropriate times to consume culture like coffee all day long in Broader <laughs> Food all day long in Broader We don't like we don't need to reinvent that as Christian. It's good. Let's just keep doing that. But the primary posture of the church should be creative. Creating culture through institutions is the way that culture is actually transformed on both a small scale and a big scale. I mean, this all is based on Jeremiah 29, right? A a group of people finding themselves in captivity, in exile. They have prophets pushing them both directions. Some people saying, withdraw from culture, culture's bad, God's gonna deliver you in the next couple of years, just separate yourself. And then other prophets over here are saying, no, just, just assimilate, just become Babylonian. Just do what, the, do what the natives do, do what the people do, right? And in the midst of that, Jeremiah looks at the people full of the spirit of God, and he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons, and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. Build culture, right? He's restating Genesis chapter one. Build culture, multiply as a people, the life-giving presence of God. Don't be afraid. And then I love this. He says, seek the welfare of the city. That word welfare is shalom. Seek the shalom of the city for in its welfare, in its prosperity, you will find your own. That's creative minority. Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, which I think the Jewish community is such a great example of this throughout American history, right? One of the most persecuted, dumped on, marginalized communities that doesn't often get a lot of talk and conversation. The Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who recently passed away, he, he kind of revived this word, creative minority, to describe the gift of the Jews. It's actually a book called The Gift of the Jews. He says, to become a creative minority is not easy, because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. In the world, but not out of the world. Seeking the welfare of the city and in its welfare, finding your own, but not conforming to the narratives, the ideologies, the pressures of the city. So let me just, I'll give you a couple handles to hang this on. What does that actually look like? One, uh, a creative minority is, as I've already said, faithfully present within culture. Right? Faithfully present within culture. As God has been present to us, God became man. He entered into Jewish culture. He entered into Roman culture. He spoke their language. He didn't float above as some kind of a spirit just like, you know, raining down like doctrines and proclamations. He entered in, became a human, smelled human, looked human, talked human, in every way became fully human while he was also fully God. That is the model, right? So he's able to enter in and affirm and celebrate the good that's happening. He's able to say there is still good in this world that has not been ruined by evil and sin. But he's also able to challenge, to provide a constructive resistance to say, you've heard it said, but I tell you, both within the religious community and outside the religious community, he must resist. He had to resist in certain ways, the cultural pressures. That requires so much discernment, cultural discernment, to be able to discern the good and celebrate the good, right? And that also means that we're going to see good outside the church, lots of good. Because the image of God still exists and it's not been destroyed. There are going to be non-Christians doing really awesome things, starting great businesses, doing really philanthropic things, not because they're saved or Christians, just because the image of God is irrepressible in them. And we need to be able to, as Christians, not look at those things and say, well, you know, they're subpar, they're not Christian. We need to be able to say, no, that's good. How can we partner together in advancing good in the world? While also... In our own spheres of influence, doing our own good as the church and as individual Christians. So we've got to be faithfully present within the city together. As Christians, we live in the city, we work in the city mostly. We 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 walk the city. We befriend our neighbors in the city. And we do that together right? We, we, we know each other. And we partner together. and We work together. and We're present, deeply present as God has been present to us. Just as God pursued us and he identified with us, we pursue and we identify with the, the needs, the brokenness, and the beauty of our city. Second thing, creative minority creates. Creates culture within their local spheres of influence. We are artists. We are gardeners. We are construction people. As God was in Genesis chapter 1, we reach down into the dirt and we organize the raw materials of the world in the social spaces we inhabit to create flourishing for other people. That's how culture is renewed it's by creating more culture. I wanna encourage you guys to start with what's right in front of you. Don't think like online, don't think global. Like start with what's right in front of you. Where have you been placed? Like think about your household is like the first thing. Like how many, how many men are chasing crazy ambitions out in the world and their families are languishing? Like one of the greatest opportunities you have to influence and renew culture is with your own children. Like I grew up in a family, multiple generations of like alcoholism and, you know, emotional trauma and different things. My parents are here in this room. We became a Christian. My dad was in his 40s and and we began to like go to church together and that script that was handed down to us was literally transformed by the good news of Jesus. And now I'm here today, who I am, also trying to influence my children in the same way because of what God did in my family. And you don't have to be married to do that, by the way. Like, we're talking households. You, you do that with your roommate. Every day, you make conscious decisions to enact flourishing and shalom in your household or not. Let's start there. Let's tend to the culture of our household. Let's tend to the culture of our workplace. Your work is a place where you get to show up and make an impact. Some of you are employers. You don't like the injustice in the world. You don't like the racism in the world. What's it look like in your boardroom? What's it look like with your executive team? What's it look like with your policies? I mean, you create those, some of you guys. This isn't like a problem out there. It's like a problem in your workplace. Some of you started companies for that very reason. Others of you are employees. And it's like, well, you don't have a lot of control on the larger macro policies, but how about how you treat your coworkers? How about how you work together? You do project management, you collaborate. How about when you enter into the ER, you enter into a a space with a cancer patient? Like, how do you treat them in that moment? How do you dignify them and remind them about the flourishing they were designed to experience with God? We have these opportunities in such ordinary ways, we have them in our neighborhoods our neighborhood associations. We have them in our church community. We better be paying attention to this in our church community. How are we enacting, flourishing with what we're doing here? The church should be a pilot plant for what this looks like in the world. And we're not going to get it right, right? We're not going to be perfect. And when we don't, we need to be held to account. We need to Be a place of justice. We need to be a place of accountability. We need to, as Jesus said, look at the speck in our own eye before looking at the log in our neighbor's eye. We should be a place of repentance. We should be a place of confession. We should be a place where power is being held and used in ways that provide human flourishing. The last thing—I don't have time to do this one—but just created minorities take responsibility. This kind of flows from others to steward institutions rather than savage them. One of the big points that Hunter makes in his book. Is that cultural change does not just happen on an individual level? It happens with institutions, right? Like your business is an institution. Anything where you are engaging in repeated acts of culture making with groups of people over periods of time, right? Like one of the problems with the church is we only think one generation. We don't think Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob three generations. We don't think beyond our own generation. If what you are doing and what I'm doing together is going to last, we must learn to start thinking institutionally. I recognize that our institutions are so broken. And I know that institutional church trust in the church is so low. But we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We become stewards of institutions, right? Holding them to account for their sins, yes. But absorbing and forgiving and working and building, that's what Jesus is calling us to. Do the work of rebuilding, Renewing, restoring. Don't just, like anybody can tear down institutions. Anybody can deconstruct. It is so easy to be an arsonist, especially in this particular moment. It is hard to be an architect. It's hard to be one who says, I'll step up and take the lead. I'll plant down in this institution and I'll work for the good of its flourishing and for society's flourishing. This is what we see throughout church history. When the church is at its best, it's a creative minority. It's making hospitals, it's tackling poverty. As early as first, second, third century, the church is working against slavery. I, I see so many of you doing this in our community. I mean, this like this is happening with poorhouse, week in and week out. This this happens when we open up our homes and we provide foster care. We have a whole new group of refugees coming into our city from Afghanistan. The, the, the city reached out to us and said, we know that you guys have a reputation for caring for the vulnerable. Would you guys be willing to open up your homes to Afghan refugees? I love that about our church. I love that they call us. I love that some of you are coaching at Purdue Polytech, soccer, basketball. You're engaging. You're teaching in these spaces. You're doing this with your families, We're starting organizations like my man Dave over here, Edge Mentoring, making a difference in the business world and and connecting generations together. I mean, that's all part of the work of cultural renewal that God's called us to. And I just want to encourage you, keep doing it, right? Keep doing that. If that is not your vision for life, it should be. That is what God is doing in the world, and that is what he's invited us to join him in doing, to be agents of renewal. to rebuild the ancient ruins, to restore the former devastations, to renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words of Isaiah, this prophetic vision of what it looks like to experience renewal, and not just personally, but for the whole creation, for every institution, for every city, for every neighborhood, for every people group, for every child for every man for every woman god this is a comprehensive vision and it can be overwhelming and god we have executed it poorly in many ways as a church and yet you continue to sustain you continue to renew you continue to bring about your kingdom purposes in the world and in every generation you raise up remnants creative minorities to bring about flourishing and wholeness and life in the world. And so, God, would you do that work in us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.